0: Good morning. Today is Sunday, August 29th, 2021. This week's Torah portion is the Parsha of Nitzavim, and next Shabbos, which is the Shabbos between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, is the Parsha of Vayelech. Some years the two portions are together, other years, like this year, they are separate. I do want to discuss with you a Pasuk near the end of Vayelech, which is next week's Parsha. And I'm discussing it with you today because I don't think I'm going to have a chance to discuss next week's Parsha next week because we're going to be talking about Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And it's something that I think is very, very important. So I don't want us to miss this insight. So I'm sharing it today. But again, it applies to next week's Parsha. At the end of next week's Parsha, the Parsha Vayelech, the Torah tells us the six hundred thirteenth mitzvah. There are six hundred thirteen commandments in the Torah, and this is number six hundred thirteen, the last one. There are still two more parshios. There is the parsha of Hazinu and the parsha of Vezos Habracha, but they do not contain commandments. The last commandment is at the end of the parsha of Ayelach, and it is as follows. God says to Moshe, And now, Moshe, write for yourself this song, this song, and teach it to the Jewish people. Put it in their mouths, meaning make sure they understand it clearly and that they absorb its message. Lamantia hazos Aid Yisrael. In order for this song to be a witness from me or about me, God says to the Jewish people. So this song that I'm telling you to write is very, very important. It will be the expression of the relationship between. God and the Jewish people for all time. And Moshe, you write it down. So, the simple way to understand that passage is this is a command to Moshe and Yoshua, Moshe's successor, that they should write down the next Parsha of the Torah, which is the Parsha of Hazinu, which in the scroll of the Torah appears as a poem. The word shira can mean song or it can mean poem there are a few places in the torah normally if you look at a torah scroll the torah is written with columns it is narrative text but there are a couple of places where it is written as if it's a poem like stanzas and it's immediately obvious if you look at the torah um as Yashir Moshe, the famous song that the Jewish people sung when they emerged victorious from the splitting of the Red Sea, is written as a song, as a poem. That the text is arranged on the parchment differently, and the next parsha after Vayelah, is the parsha of Azinu, which is also a song or a poem, and it appears that way. So again, Hashem is saying to, the, to, to Moshe and, and Yoshua, write the next parsha of Hazinu as a song. Okay. Our rabbis in the Talmud understand it differently. Our rabbis in the Talmud understand it that it is not just an instruction to Moshe and Yoshua to write the next Parsha. It is actually a commandment to every single Jew. Every single Jew should write for themselves their own, Torah scroll. And that's how it becomes number 613. The last commandment in the Torah is to write a Torah scroll for yourself. It doesn't appear that this is the meaning on the simple level of the text. God is speaking to Moshe and he says, write for yourself this song. The song appears to be what the next line, which is the Parshavazinu However, Ibn Ezra focuses on the phrase, Kisvu Lochem. You, plural, should write for yourself. If God is only talking about Moshe writing the next parsha, why does it say Kis? It should say Ksav in the singular. God's talking to Moshe. Kisvu implies God is talking to the entire Jewish people. That's what seems to indicate that this is a commandment for every Jewish person to write their own Torah scroll. Additionally, the end of that Pesach that I read to you, li'ashira azos Yisrael, in order for this song to be a witness for the entire Jewish people, seems to imply that it is not talking just about that one Parshav of Hazinu, it seems to be talking about the entire Torah. The entire Torah has to be written by every single Jew. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points out that it's kind of interesting that when we get to the very end of the Torah, the last commandment that Hashem gives us, every single one of us, is write your own Torah. In other words, it's as if God is saying to the entire Jewish people, including to you and me, because the Torah speaks for all time, God speaks for all time, that God is saying to every one of us, it's not enough that you have just received the Torah. It's not enough that Moshe wrote the first Torah. Every one of you, every one of us, has to renew it for ourselves. But notice the the complementary nature of the contradictory message. Because on the one hand, we have to remain loyal to the original Torah. Every single Torah scroll that is written is virtually identical to the original Torah scroll that Moshe first wrote. But at the same time, we need to write it ourselves again. We need to have it and work for it ourselves. So there is this Complementary nature of remaining loyal to the original, but also recreating it for ourselves. Our sages explain many people are not able or qualified to write their own Torah scroll, or may not be financially able to do so. Uh, To write a Torah scroll is very, very expensive and of course it requires much specialized knowledge of how to write correctly and you have to have the right materials and utensils so not everybody is able to do that many people i'll take that back some people will arrange to buy a torah scroll so for example they will pay the money to a sofer to a scribe to write a torah scroll and though they will not have the mitzvah of writing it themselves, but we, they will have the mitzvah of ordering it that, be, that it be written. The sofer will be their agent, and so they'll be able to fulfill this mitzvah with the agent of, through the agency of the sofer of the scribe. Sometimes there is a ceremony where other people are invited to write just one letter. So, of course, I haven't written the entire Torah myself, but I wrote one letter. And, of course, as we know, a Torah scroll that is missing even one letter is invalid. So, my letter is a necessary part of this Torah. So, I have some kind of a share in the writing of a Torah scroll. A little bit more practically, our rabbis explain, if a person does not write their own Torah scroll and a person does not participate in the writing of someone else's Torah scroll, you can purchase a printed book, a Chumash Sefer, which has it written down. It doesn't qualify as a Torah scroll to read from in the synagogue, but it certainly does qualify as having the text to be able to study for because obviously this mitzvah is about making very easy and accessible and close by the opportunity to study Torah. And that's something that almost all of us are able to do, to have a Torah, at least written, printed, svarim, books, in our home, and they're available to us to study. Okay, very nice. That's the mitzvah, different ways to fulfill it at different levels. But here's the question I want to pose to you. If you assume the word Hashira Hazos, the phrase Hashira Hazos, write this song, refers only to the Parsha of Hazinu, like the simple meaning of the text. Okay, it refers to the Parsha of Hazinu. It's a little bit hard to understand why God would be commanding to write the next portion. I mean, there's no other portion in the Torah where God ends the portion saying, Moshe, write the next portion. Obviously, Moshe writes whatever God tells him to write. Okay, if you assume that this is a mitzvah to write the entire Torah scroll, why is it called shirah, a song or a poem? The Torah, as I mentioned earlier, has in it a few songs or poems, but most of it is narrative. Barashas Barolakim, from the beginning to the end, is almost all narrative. Why is it called Shira, if that word Shira, song, or poem is meant to refer to the entire Torah. Let me share with you, please, two out of many, two understandings of this. One is given by the Nitziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who lived in the 1800s, a great Torah scholar. He gave the following answer. He said, yes, almost the entire Torah is written as prose. As narrative, but it should be read, it should be studied as poetry. What's the difference? The Nativ says there are two characteristics of poetry that reading it is different than prose. Number one, poetry is elusive, not explicit. If you're writing a story in prose, you give the details. What he, sh- what he said, what she said, what where they were, what it looked like, what they were feeling. You give the details. You set the scene. A poem, very often, is very elusive. It uses only a few words. And we're supposed to, in our minds, conjure up all of the details from just those few words. Think of almost any great poem that resonates with you and see how just a few words are used to summon up much greater truth. It leaves unsaid more than is said. And therefore the Torah is to be understood in that manner. The Torah is to be understood as something that is only giving us a few words. But we are meant to supply the context, to supply the description. That's what our rabbis provide for us. For example, in the Midrash, and and our rabbis who, in the commentaries, are providing all of that to make it come alive for us. The Torah only uses a few words. And a second feature of poetry is that, the meaning is usually deeper than the surface. Prose, if you read a story, you read the words, and that tells you the message. Yes, of course, there are more complicated, there are deeper books, yes. But in general, prose is meant to be understood the way it's written. Poetry has to be studied. Poetry has to be analyzed. The message is often not right there on the surface. You have to think about it. You have to think about the metaphor. You have to think about the simili. You have to think about the repetition. You have to think about the choice of words. And the Torah has to be read and understood in the same way. Let me share with you this example. Now, uh, Eric Auerbach was a famous ra- biblical scholar in the 20th century. I don't think he had any knowledge of the Nitziv, but he makes virtually the same point by comparing Homer to the Torah. And I'm just talking about in terms of the literary style. If you read the Iliad by Homer, it is dazzling in its descriptions of what each person looked like and what they were thinking and what they said and where they were and what the scenery looked like and what the battle was and how it looked uh, 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 in this scene and in that scene. It's a vibrant, vivid picture that Homer draws for us through the prose of his writing. Compare that in its style of writing, to the Ikedah, to the binding of Isaac. One of the most dramatic narratives in the entire Torah. But think about what we do not know. We don't know what anybody is thinking. We only know a few words of what each person says. We know that it took three days They had to have said more to each other, Avram and Yitzchak, than the handful of words that the Torah records. There had to have been very deep emotions going on. Imagine if a novelist were to write that, which, by the way, has happened many times. It would be voluminous. We don't know anything about the scenery. What did it look like? Nothing. Nothing. Listen to our box point, the decisive, he's describing the Akeda. the decisive points of the narrative alone are emphasized. What lies between is non-existent. Time and place are unidentified, right? Remember from the text of the Torah, we don't know where it takes place. Yes, later tradition says it took place on the place that later becomes Harabias, the place of the Basin of English, but that's not indicated anywhere in in the text. It's just a mountain, the mountain that I'll show you. It's undefined and it calls for interpretation. Thoughts and feelings remain unexpressed, they're only suggested by the silence and the fragmentary speeches, the whole permeated with the most unrelieved suspense and directed toward a single goal remains mysterious and fraught with background. So, according to the Nitziv, as Auerbach will later suggest, we're meant to understand the Torah as a poem in the sense that we have to read into it, in the sense that it's very spare in its words, and we have to supply the context and the scenery and the background and the underlying story and the meaning. Okay, that's the nitziv. Let me share with you a completely different understanding by Rav Yechil Michel Epstein, one of the great halachic authorities as well as great scholars of the late 1800s and early 1900s. He says, "It's called a song, a shira." Because it becomes more beautiful as more voices are added to the harmony. There are multiple interpretations of the Torah. There are additional insights that every single person who reads it brings to understanding it, perhaps from their own experience, perhaps from their own character all of that adds to the beauty and the complexity of the Torah. And that means it becomes more beautiful as it becomes more complex every day when there are more people studying and more people adding their own understanding. Every single person who studies Torah sees something else, takes from it something else, just in the course of our discussions, just to take it as, a, as an example, I might offer a certain interpretation, you might agree, you might disagree, you might offer your own interpretation, and all of it is valid. And from the discussion we have, all of those voices are added. They were never there before. They're new. The Torah is growing in complexity and beauty At every single moment. Now, I pointed out, I utilized this metaphor last week in a different context. But it's true here also. The difference between a soloist who may perform beautiful music by him or herself. But yet, when it's together with an orchestra, it becomes so much more dazzling and immense and amazing and overwhelming according to Rav Epstein, that's what the Torah is. The Torah is this collection, not a single text. Yes, of course, the single text that comes from God is by itself the Word of God. But it's meant to be understood as a poem so that we all have to understand it. We have to all add our opinions. And every one of those opinions is different. And every one of those insights is different. Every voice joining together creates a symphony that no individual can match. So that calling the entire Torah a shira, according to Rabbi Epstein, is to assert that the more voices that are raised in explaining it, in studying it, the more beautiful it is. Even if some of those voices are softer than others, even if some of the voices are more literal or less literal, Think about just the classic commentators, the difference in approach and style between Rashi and the Ramban, the difference between a more textual understanding, a more philosophical understanding, a more advanced understanding, a more beginner understanding. Every single nuance of differences that every human being brings. And the more who study it and who consider it and question it the Shira, the song, the poem of the Torah becomes more magnificent. More magnificent than if it was sung by even the most talented individual singer. And the lesson for us is to value every single person's contribution to understanding the Torah. Every single interpretation, every single school of thought and approach to understanding it and individual insight and question, every one of us adds to the beauty of the Torah. Rabbi Sachs concludes the Torah is God's song and we collectively are its singers And if it is a song, it's meant to be performed by us. God needs us to bring the Torah to life like a composer needs the orchestra to bring the music to life. The shira of the Torah is the partnership Between God, the composer, and us, every member of his orchestra. My friends, I want to wish you a wonderful day. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.